Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we come to you. And God, we worship you here this morning. And we just, we all agree that you are worthy. That you alone are worthy of all glory and honor. Yeah, we, we agree that you are a gracious and merciful and kind and patient Savior. God, you, you've shown us all amazing mercy and grace. And I pray we would remember that and celebrate it this morning. God, I pray for the rest of this time as we continue worshiping. Father, would you help me to teach? How, how many teach the word clearly and accurately? God, I pray you help all of us to listen. And we're asking that you continue to meet us here as we turn our eyes to you and to, to, to your word. God, I'm asking that you would work in our hearts in a way that would cause us to really know you more and love you better. God, I pray you would produce more and more worship and obedience in our lives. God, we, we want to see fruit, but only the fruit that you create. We pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. All right, well, this morning, um, we're still in our process of fully opening up as a church. Um, so we started Sunday school this morning. I'm excited about that. So we've got small groups. More of those will be opening up as we go on Wednesday evenings. It, it feels almost weird to have that much activity in the church after the year that we've just had. I don't know if y'all would agree with that. No, you won't agree with that. Okay, uh, I see how we're going to do this this morning. I'm with you. Okay, we're going to dance that dance. Uh, for those of you visiting, my name's Fias. I'm the lead pastor here at North Florida Baptist Church. And we're going to be continuing a series in Titus that we've been doing on and off for a little while now. Uh, let me give you a quick rundown of what's been going on. Because this morning we're about to look at Paul's message for training young men and church leaders in the church. But let me tell you where we've been so far in the book of Titus. Uh, Paul went to this island of Crete, which is this luxury island in the middle of the Mediterranean. I mean, dude, it is killer. Like if, if you don't know it, you Google it right now, C-R-E-T-E. -E. I don't mind you Googling in church. You'll do that on your phone. And look at pictures of the island of Crete. It is phenomenal. Totally awesome. But Paul showed up there. He went around that island and all these villages and shared the gospel and planted churches because apparently it was that easy for this guy. He could just plant a church in a week. Just ridiculous. But he leaves Titus on the island of Crete and he gives him a job. Let me show you to Titus chapter one, verse five. He says this. This is why I left you in Crete. You got two jobs so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Titus, you got two jobs. I left you here in Crete. I need you to get the churches organized and set up to do what they're supposed to do. And you, I've also need you to set up the leadership in the church, both things. Set up leadership, get them organized, show them how to get together, how to meet, how to teach, how to care for the needs among them, how to reach their city. Titus, you need to go around to all of these villages and teach them and organize them and get them ready to be the church. So he does that. He takes off. And one of those important aspects was making sure the teaching was correct. So in chapter two, which is where we're at, verse one, Paul tells Titus this, as for you, I want you to teach what accords with sound doctrine. In other words, Titus, get the teaching right in the churches. That's your job. I want you to get it right. Don't slack off on that. You can organize it. You can get all the leaders you want. But if the teaching is wrong, you've jacked up the whole thing. That's basically Fies' translation of Paul. He says it better than I do. He never says jacked up. Anyways, let me keep moving on here. And, and what he does in chapter 2 is he gives him instructions. This is all review. 
He gives them instructions. Here's only to tell the older men. You want them to be dignified and sound in the faith and love and endurance. The older men are probably 65 plus. Um, that's probably the age range Paul is talking about here. And he, he gives instruction for the older women. We have none of those in our church. We've already established that. But if we ever do have older women in the church, his instructions for them are that they're supposed to be reverent or almost this idea of a priestess, that, that she's someone who's been walking with God. Like there's this aroma when you're around her that reminds you of the sacrifice of Jesus. And you want these older ladies to teach the younger ladies. And the younger ladies, he gives instructions for them to love their family and love their kids, make the home a priority, and be submissive to their husbands. It's this, this conversation here. And now he shifts to younger men and leaders in the church. And just for the record, younger men does not mean just 20-year-olds. He's probably talking under 60 Okay, so if you are if you're 13 to 65, this content is for you. You may not feel younger. I hope that's for you guys. I hope some of you that's encouraging. Maybe it probably been more encouraging for the ladies, but I don't I don't know. Anyways, guys, this is this is his message for how the church is supposed to instruct the younger men. So let's just jump in. Chapter two, verse six. So he starts talking to these younger men and he says this. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So, so here's the thing, his list for the younger men, it, it almost seems unfair. He's got one word, be self-controlled. Anybody feel like that's, the guy's got the easy one on that one? Okay, good, I'm, I'm glad if you've, uh, it was tough for me. I was like, listen, the older men have like four or five things and the older ladies have three things and the younger ladies have like, man, they got it brutal. It's like four or five things and the young dudes just, can I just get you guys to be self-controlled? That's, that's kind of the thing. Teach them to be self-controlled. Listen, this word self-controlled has actually been in all the other instructions for the other people, apart from the older ladies. He wants the older men to be self-controlled. The, the younger ladies are to be taught to be self-controlled, and now he wants the younger men to be self-controlled. And let me flesh out what that means again for those of you who haven't been here. Self-controlled means this. It's not what you would think of, this is a person who knows how to work out every day, and they've, they've got everything ordered. It's different than that. It's, it's a person who knows how to think rightly and therefore live right rightly. This is a person that lives wisely. This is a person that's able to say, I know what God says. I know what, what's most important and most valuable. And I'm actually going to live according to what's most important and most valuable. So here's what I want from the young men. Not just they learn how to get up at 6 a.m. every morning or 5 a.m. or whatever time is the most self-discipline. Not they know how to work out and, and do their diet. Not how they can organize everything. That's not what he means by here. What he means here is someone who can live wisely. Someone who can live in moderation and balance. So, someone whose life is marked by eternity. They're looking to eternity and it's impacting their day-to-day -day life. That's what self-controlled means. So Paul is saying, here's what I want you to tell these young guys. I want you to teach them to live wisely. Now, as I looked through that, I started thinking through, well, what does that exactly mean? Like, what would that, how would that flesh out? I, I looked at several passages digging through it, and I just want to catalog a few of those big ideas for it, because I think it means a lot, but let me just flesh out a few. Uh, these, are, these are not rocket science. But first of all, I think that means he wants him to teach these young guys to pursue Jesus. Like, listen, if you're living with eternity in mind, it's not that you just get saved and trust in Jesus as your Savior and go along your merry way. He wants these young men to know how to run hard after knowing and loving and worshiping God. 
Uh, that's the instruction. Young guys, this is not for young guys. Listen, here's what you get to do. You get to party in your teenage years and your 20s. And then when you have kids, you wake up and say, okay, now I'm going to put that aside and follow God. No, no. He's saying he wants all the young men from 13 to 65. He wants the church to teach them to go hard for God. Not this passive, subtle thing. Not when they hit 40, do they start following God? Listen, all my 13, 14, 15 year olds, you can follow Jesus right now. You can follow him in 18, 19, 20, 25, not 22 and 23 apparently, but I got to skip those numbers. Listen, all your 20s, all your 30s, Jesus can help you follow hard after him. He's worth it. And the church should come alongside young people and teach them and encourage them to run hard after Jesus. That doesn't sound complicated, right? That, that surprising to you that I would say that? If it is, I don't know what to tell you. The second thing, I think living wisely means you teach these young guys how to fight and kill sin. Listen, sin will wreck you. It, it will ruin you. And one of the things that living wisely means is you know that sin is going to wreck me. If you're not sure about how wisdom says that, read the entire book of Proverbs over and over and over again. The Proverbs are giving instructions from the older men to the younger men and the older generation to the younger generation saying, listen, that's going to end poorly for you. Don't do it. That sin will eat your lunch. It'll feel fun and pleasant. It'll call you into it. But the moment you get there, it, it's, it's got you in a trap and you're dead meat. I think part of living wisely, self-controlled, is teaching young men and young leaders how to fight sin. Let, let me give you a couple examples. I, I mean, do I, I don't know if that's really complicated, but the church should be teaching young men to fight lust. We should be, right? Apparently we're not allowed to talk about that sometimes in church. You're not allowed to say things like, man, we got to teach you to fight porn. We got to teach you to fight lust. It becomes a taboo topic, but it's not taboo. If we're going to teach you to live self-controlled lives, we got to teach you to fight sin. We got to teach you to fight pride. Listen, that can be a doozy, especially some of those younger teenage years and 20 years can stick in for the, all of your life. But we've got to be able to teach people how to fight pride or how to fight laziness or how to fight greed, or how to fight being a selfish turd and being a bad husband and father. Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> if not, I already did, so uh, moving on. Right, like seriously, the, the church should be teaching young men how to be godly men. You should be a better father, husband, dad. You should be a better man because of the church. That's not rocket science, is it? Why is it so hard for the church to get this right? I think thirdly, I would say, I think the church out of self should be teaching young men and church leaders. Don't forget young men includes you guys in your sixties to be deeply engaged in community and discipleship in the church. It's the church that's supposed to be doing this. It should be part of your life. Like living wisely knows I need those people. I need those relationships. I need to be around. They need me and I need them. The church is a gift of grace for all of us. Now it doesn't always look that way. It's supposed to be. When the church is operating rightly and correctly according, according to God's plan, it should be a place that you desperately need. Not a thing you need to attend. It's a people you need to be a part of. That's different. 
I think sometimes we've lowered church. Church has been, I just need to show up every morning at 10. It's not showing up. It's being engaged. It's way more than showing up. It's not less than, it's more than that. You gotta have relationships and have to be helpful in your walk with God. Now listen, nothing I said here is rocket science. I didn't even catalog all the verses that got me there because I just don't want to spend an hour on that. Here's what I want you to see. I want you to put this in your brain. Look at Titus chapter one, verse 12. Let me remind you what, what Crete was like. Chapter one, verse 12. Here's this list. One of the Cretans. That's a great name, right? That's why you don't want to live in Crete. I don't want to be called a Cretan for my whole life. I'm a Cretan. Okay, anyways. Uh, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said... Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And verse 13, this testimony is true. Listen, here's what I want you to hear. I need you to hear this. The people that Titus is supposed to be teaching to be self-controlled are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Listen, the thing I just said doesn't sound like rocket science, but the church is made up of a whole bunch of really broken people. Like for these guys that he's talking to, these men and women in this church that Titus is supposed to teach to have self-control, to pursue Jesus and to fight and kill sin and to be deeply engaged in the church, that probably sounds way beyond them. I mean, think about it. Evil beasts and lazy gutton is, it's their background. It's their culture. It's almost like they're hardwired for it. It is their past. And it might be some of their present. And then Paul is saying, listen, you got this group and they need to learn this self-control to live wisely. Now, let me ask you a question. Like I... And have you ever had that moment where you hear all the things that Jesus wants from you and it just feels impossible? Y'all had that? You can raise your hand if you want. Okay. If you raise your hand, I'm preaching to you. The rest of you, I'm ignoring you for the rest of the service. All right. If you're not going to raise your hand, if you're going to lie in church, if you're going to lie, now I'm going to get all preaching angry because people are lying in here. Listen, like that moment where it just feels like you're saying, listen, you don't know my past. You don't know my upbringing or how jacked up my family is. You don't know what I've seen and experienced. You don't know what I've done. That's what the church is supposed to be, a whole bunch of people that have a whole list of things of why they should never, ever, ever on their own be able to do this. And Paul is telling Titus, you need to, get, you need to teach these young guys and these young men, these churches to, to be this. Listen, I, I like this word because I imagine it for these guys in Crete. They're like, listen, Paul, Titus, we're not Jews, man. We didn't grow up like that. It's not as easy. Like you're saying we're supposed to be with the church like every day. Like imagine this. You're telling me a lazy beast. They probably don't call themselves lazy beasts, but like you're telling a person who's struggling and wrapped up in laziness saying you're supposed to go hard after Jesus. That sound like that's going to work? Bro, I can't even get you to get out of bed and work a job, and I want you to get up and read your Bible. Pursue him. You, you, you're telling someone that always lies and that they're evil beasts. That means they just do awful things all the time. 
You want me to go tell that person, hey man, like I need you to be in deep relationship in the church. How do you think that's going to work out? Put a bunch of liars and scumbags in a room together. How's church going to be? Well, it's going to be church in case you were wondering. <laughs> but, but listen, like he's saying, listen, th this is way beyond these dudes. And he's sitting here saying, listen, I'm putting you together. You're supposed to be in relationship and you lie all the time and you're evil. Like, listen, yeah, that's really going to work, Paul. Thanks for this. Like, this plan is brilliant. We need some good people in this church for it to take off. Listen, I, I want... I want to show you one word that I just skipped right over. It's, it's this really wor weird word here. Verse six, he says this. We just read it. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That word urge, if you take notes, you can circle that word urge in your Bible. Uh, Going to give you a free little Greek lesson here. That word urge is the word, uh, well, here's what it means. It means to encourage. It's the word parakaleo, in case you're wondering. I'm going to go somewhere with that in a second. Means, it means to put courage into someone, to come alongside, to encourage, to strongly call someone to something. It's the same word that's a description of who the Holy Spirit is. You ever heard the phrase paraclete? Listen, he's telling Titus to Holy Spirit these guys. That's not exactly what he's saying, but he's saying, listen, I need you to be a comfort to these dudes. I need you to put some courage in them. I need you to encourage them in this journey of being self-controlled. I don't need you to beat these dudes down. Your preaching is supposed to put courage into these men. Not courage like we're going to charge the fields like in Braveheart or whatever movie gets you all riled up. It, it, here's the courage. It's gospel courage, you guys. It's a gospel confidence that Jesus is actually strong enough to do this work. He's saying, here's, you're going to urge these guys. You're going to strongly remind them. You're going to come alongside of them and say this. You're going to remind them this. Jesus died to clean you. I, I know how bad you've been, or maybe I don't. But here's what I know. No matter how bad you've been, I know how strong the gospel is. And when Jesus died on the cross, regardless of your past and your upbringing and your history, he cleaned you. And he did it good. <laughs> right? He did it completely. He actually makes you clean. So in that moment when these guys are showing up saying, man, I'm trying to follow Jesus, but I keep stumbling. I don't think this is going to work. Titus gets to put courage in these young men and say, Jesus cleans you. Your performance doesn't make him happy with you. The performance of Jesus is what makes him smile. Titus gets to put courage in these guys by saying, it's not just that he died for you. He's alive right now to empower you. There's power. He put his spirit in you so that you can actually live this life. I know you feel like you're stumbling and you're failing. And everywhere you go, you jack it up and mess it all up. But Jesus is alive today. He didn't just die. He's alive to empower you and me to actually be able to kill the sin and live this life. That put courage in them that Jesus didn't just die to clean them, that he is alive within them. There's more. It's not just that he died and that he's alive. It's that he's going to finish this. I know it doesn't feel like it right now. You have that moment, that moment where it feels like you just can't break whatever sin it is. It feels like it's got its claws wrapped deep in you. No matter how many times you try to rip it off, no matter how many accountability partners you try to have, no matter how many conversations you have, it, you just give up, man. I'm never going to beat this thing. 
Listen, Jesus is going to finish the work that he started in you and me. I don't have to finish the work. He has to finish the work. It's his job. That's the good news. So listen, man, if I'm limping along and I'm getting my legs kicked out from underneath me all the time and I'm failing over and over and over again, the good news is that Jesus cleans me. The good news is that Jesus is in me to enable me to kill that sin. And the really good news is he's going to finish this work. Man, shouldn't the church be putting that kind of courage in all of us? I, I, I don't know what you're struggling with today. Men and women, it has to be young men. It can be all of us, young and old. Listen, I want to remind you that the gospel is really good news. It's good news for your failures. It's good news for the growth that God is doing in you. You see it and say, man, he's actually working. It's, it's good news that he's going to finish it. I, I like that, man. That feels like really good news to me. So Paul tells Titus, you need to come alongside these guys. You need to put gospel courage in them. You need to speak the truth to them. You need to stir them up and come alongside them and preach the good news to these guys. I like that. Man, men's ministry should be that, right? I'm looking at that saying, man, church, can we be that? Can, can we as a church, I just, can you just imagine it? Wouldn't you imagine what it would be like that this was a place that when you showed up, you're going to connect to a relationship no matter how broken you were and how much you messed up Saturday night. It doesn't matter. You show up here, we put courage to follow Jesus in you. We remind you of the good news. It might be hard to hear, but it still could be good news. Listen, that's the gospel. Church, we cannot lose our way in what type of teaching the church is supposed to give all the time. It's that all the time. I got to be honest. I feel like that type of teaching is feeling more and more rare in the church in the United States today. Maybe it happened in the past. I don't know. I'm sure there's pockets of it all over the place. But when I'm looking, listen to podcasts of pastors, I'm watching things on YouTube. I am more and more concerned that the church's teaching is not this. It's something else. We teach younger men how to, how to look good, but we don't really actually care if you're actually good on the inside. We teach you how to do it without Jesus. You don't need them. You need church, but you don't need Jesus. Like, listen, I, that's not what the church is supposed to do. This should be a place. Church, the church is a place for young and old alike to be stirred to know and love Jesus. And one of the good gifts of this church is we have young and old here. We don't need to separate y'all. We need to put y'all together, together, stirring each other up to love and good works is what it says in the book of Hebrews. But, but listen, there, there's more here because as Paul is talking to Titus about how to teach the young men, Paul is actually teaching a young man named Titus. They say, Titus, this is the type of leader I want you to be. So in this conversation about young men, Paul also transitions to a conversation about church leadership. Look at what he says here in verses seven and eight. He says this, and I think this includes all young men, 65 and younger. He says this, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. That word model means 
pattern, something you can try to imitate. It's almost like the type of words you would use that if, if you were taking something and you were imprinting on it, that would be the model that you would make. You want that impression that I'm looking at this pattern to follow and I, I want to be just like a St. Titus. Here's what you need to be as a young man and a leader. You need to be a pattern that they can look at and model the, themselves after in everything, in all good works. Here's some verses where else he says that in other places. He says this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Paul says this to Timothy, a young guy. He says, let no one despise you for your youth. And I want all the young guys to hear this. Young guys, you need to set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, Listen, it's not that we got to wait for you to hit 60 and 70 to be an example of the believer. You can be an example of the believer right now. And that's the call for the younger men. And it's also the call for me as one of your leaders in the church, as the pastor here. 1 Corinthians 11.1, he says it again. Paul says this to the, the Corinthian church. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Man, that's phenomenal. What a bold statement. I need you guys to imitate me just like I'm imitating Jesus. Hebrews 13, seven says this, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Because I think this is a big deal. It, it is reasonable for you to expect young men in the church to be examples of the faith. It's reasonable for you to expect me as your pastor to be an example of living life following Jesus. I'm not, I just took a deep swallow as I said that out loud, right? Like this moment of like, oh man, it makes me sweat a little. But, but listen, this is the call to all leadership in the church. It's not the call to be a fake example you should expect and demand that all pastors and church leaders should be real and authentic followers of Jesus who are really walking with him. It's not a call to perfection for them, but it is a call for them to be really following Jesus in a way that if you imitated them, you'd be imitating Christ. This is the expectation that church leaders would be Christ-like, that we'd be growing really growing in being a real follower of Jesus all the days of our life. So here's what it means. It's okay for you to watch your leaders, not in a critical, I want to pick you apart way. <laughs> all right. Imagine that you stand up in front of a church at a Baptist church and say, I need you guys to watch me. <laughs> what kind of death wish do you have? No, this is the Bible's call. It's okay for you to watch church leaders. Not in a critical way, but in a way that says, listen, that life needs to be worthy of imitating because they're really following Jesus. I, that's the expectation. It's not because that leader is awesome. It's not because that leader has all their stuff together and is perfect. It's because that leader is really following Jesus. Now, I need to give a warning here. Uh, don't set your hope on a leader. That's going to cause problems. The point is this. Titus, whatever leadership is in the church, Fias, all of you, whatever pastor you will ever be under for all of your life, 
that man should be really following Jesus in a way that is visible that you can imitate. Doesn't mean he's got to have all the skill sets of, I don't want to get into that right now. Here's what it means. Doesn't mean you imitate me. It means you imitate me as I imitate Christ. That last part is essential. Church, you can't, we can't compromise on this pattern of Christ-likeness in the leaders. And there's more. He doesn't just stop right there. And I'm, I am sweating reading that. I need the gospel right now. I'm rolling up my sleeves because it's getting warm. I'm saying, you need to imitate me as I imitate Jesus, knowing all my failures and weaknesses in it. And there's plenty of them. I still need him to help me be this. I cannot be an example of what it means to follow Jesus if he's not working in my heart. I, I can't. I can't manufacture that. I can't fake it, at least not for too long, or it's all going to come out, right? It's got to be real. It has to be real. Not pretend. Do not settle for anything less than that. But, but here's what I love. Look, look at what he says here. He keeps going in verse 7. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and your, t- and your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech is the first part of verse eight. Can I just point out something real quick? I want you to see the description of the teaching. Integrity, dignity, and sound speech. How does how's teaching have integrity? Doesn't that sound like how you would describe the way someone lives their life? Does teaching have dignity? That, that almost sounds like that's the way someone would live their life. There's actually a lot of debate in this passage. Is Paul saying this about teaching or about teaching in life? And here's what I think Paul is saying really, really clearly. The way that the leaders in the church live their life and the way they teach both matter. You need both. The power in the pulpit is a combination of truth that is taught and truth that is lived every single day. Don't settle for less because God is not settling for less. It's okay for that to be your expectation that the life lived before you must be real and authentic and the truth must be true and accurate and right according to the word. That is the standard that God has for church leadership. Let me uh, read a few things because he's, he's talking about an issue with false teachers. Let me read what the false teachers are like in Crete because in case you forgot it, chapter one, verse 10. He says this, he's describing the false teachers in Crete. He says, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, especially the legalists. They're empty talkers, insubordinate. They're really rebellious. They're deceivers. Verse 11, they must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain. They're greedy and they're wrecking families. They're teaching what they ought not to teach. Look at verse 16. They profess to know God. They got really good speech. They got the God talk down. But they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. When you compare that to what he just said the leaders in the church are supposed to be. Look at that list again in chapter 2, verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. See that there? That are detestable, unfit for any good work. That's the false teachers. Titus, you're supposed to be a model of all good works in everything. 
sound speech, or sorry, I skipped, in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Let me explain those words. Integrity means soundness. It means they teach the whole truth, not just the easy passages or their favorite passages or the one that the crowd loves to hear. The teaching has an integrity in that it teaches all of the Bible. Teaching has dignity. It's supposed to be proper. It shows that it's above ordinary and therefore worthy of respect. In other words, it should be clear that this teaching is from the holy God and that it accurately reflects God's glory and majesty and worth and power and grace and mercy. It should clearly portray the dignity of the almighty God. It, it should have the aroma of eternity. This should be more than a self-help spe self -help speech or a shot in the arm. It, listen, right teaching should cause our gaze to be fixed on the eternal almighty God. You should hear the call of scripture and it should make something and you go, okay, whoa, I got, okay, he's big and his standards are high. That's why I need Jesus. It's supposed to be sound speech. That phrase sound speech means it's healthy. It's, it's not corruptible. It's accurate. It's beneficial. It, it could be, it could, you could say it this way. It's the authorized gospel. Like Paul is telling Titus, you stay in line with what I've taught you. Don't get out of whack. Don't go off on your own and make up your own teaching. You teach the authorized word of God. Not your own opinion of it, but what it actually says. That means the teaching cannot be sloppy or all, ever which way. So here's what I like about this. The result of this type of teaching, teaching that is true and accurate, that is dignified, has integrity, it's, it's right according to the word, and a life that is a model of good works, that combination silences critics. Here's what he says there in the rest of verse 8. It says this, sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame. It's almost like this. Man, I really don't like them, but I can't talk against Titus and those elders of that church because they're the real deal, man. When I do it, it's, everyone's like, come on, dude, you're being ridiculous. Everyone who knows them knows they're not lunatics. He says it this way. He says that he can be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Listen, church, this is what the church is supposed to be. We're supposed to have lives that adorn the gospel and teaching that accurately reflects the gospel and the almighty, gracious, merciful, kind God. We have to have both. Man, let me give you some examples of stuff that I've seen. If you've grown up in church, I'm certain you've seen examples that go against this, that are easily condemned. I, I got some, I've, I've almost walked out of church services way more times than I would care to admit, which is really awkward when you're on staff at the church. You should probably know that. All right, I, uh, one of the first churches I was on staff at, we were in an interim and we were having all sorts of guest preachers show up. Lord have mercy. Uh, you know, when you're working with, I'm, I'm gonna give some examples of really bad things that have happened in church. That's where I'm going with this. I remember one week I'd been working with a family and uh, their son had come out of the closet and they were wrestling with this discussion. It had been going on for several weeks. So, I'm waiting in as the youth pastor. That's what we did. We have those conversations. Then we have a guest pastor show up that Sunday and decide not, not to preach the word accurately and truly with grace and mercy. He decides that, you know, it's going to really get the crowd laughing. 
I get up here and make fun of homosexuals, if I talk in a certain way and stand in a certain way, and he decided that the most dignified way to preach the word of the almighty, gracious God was through mockery from that pulpit. That's not what Jesus expects when people stand up and proclaim the word. And it's unacceptable to our savior to mock those for whom he died. I wish I could say that's the only thing that I've seen. There's no room for that type of mockery. There's no room for this type of teaching that pumps in the church of this type of prosperity gospel. I don't know if y'all been exposed to this. It's this idea that, listen, if you will just have faith, you'll be wealthy. You'll get that raise. You'll all be healed. I've been in those conversations with those people where the mom has cancer and she passes away and you're in the, the cleanup after some dude has pumped this teaching into them that said, she'll be healed if you have enough faith. That's, that's the only thing. Do you have faith? Do you have faith? Do you have faith? Then their mom dies. And I'm not saying God can't heal. I'm, I'm saying we should ask for healing and believe it. But what I'm saying is it's not guaranteed every single time. He didn't guarantee it. And that cleanup, you just need to know this. That cleanup, when you're showing up, dealing with that family, and they're sitting there saying, she died because I didn't have enough faith and we were praying for her to be healed. There's no room in the church for that type of false teaching. That's not integrity. That's not in line with the doctrine and word of God. There's also no room for shallow, simplistic teaching on complex issues. This is what I see happening in church right now. There's a complex issue. For example, uh, I'm not going to teach on this right now, but let's say the issue of racial tension in our country right now. Did you know what is really ridiculous in churches? Pastors giving simple answers for really complex issues. Unacceptable. There's no room for that. It's it's not simple. And when you get up and you stand before people to present the word, not only does your life have to be in step, your teaching has to be in step. It's not mockery. It's not false. It's not a shallow, simplistic issue. Answer. It's not that. This, these people stand up and they teach the word with integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned. And when we do, here's what happens. Chapter, verse 10 the last part of it says this, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Church, here's what the church is supposed to be like for its young men and its leaders. We're supposed to live life and teach the word in a way that adorns the gospel for our neighbors. Doesn't make the gospel prettier. It points out how beautiful the gospel really is. And too many times our teaching and our lives are not doing that. So here's my question for you. Is your life adorning the gospel or detracting from it today? Man, there may be something that's going on in your head right now. You're saying, oh, I know this, this, this detracted from it. I want to give you the good news of Jesus, that he cleans you and he forgives you and he can enable you to live a life that actually adorns the gospel. Listen, is the teaching of the church doing this. Listen, for some of you, I'm afraid that some of you may have been offended by the church in the past and maybe rightfully so. I don't know all your stories, but if you're here and the church has trampled over you because they haven't been true, they haven't lived true lives 
and they haven't taught the word with integrity and dignity and soundness of speech, if you've been offended by the mishandling of the word, listen, can I just stand up here and say, will you forgive us for that? And I'm asking you, the fact you're here is a big step if you've been trampled on by the church. But I'm just saying, would you give Jesus another chance? Don't, don't walk away from Jesus because some people got it wrong. Really figure out who he is because he has a call for the church that too often we miss to our shame, but not to his. Would you give him another chance? Listen, some of you may have grown up in the church and you got a list of things. Jesus is better. And then church, the call for all of us is this. Can we be those people? Can we be people whose lives adorn the gospel? Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And give us a moment to kind of just walk through response. I'll tell you what this will look like. I'm not going to try to manipulate you. I'm not going to do that. There's going to be music playing in the background. This is a time for you to actually say, God, what did you say to me today in the word? God, what, what are you convicting me of? What obedience are you calling me to? God, what awesome things about you did I see today that are worthy of worship? So the question I'm gonna walk you through, is there sin you need to repent of? Is there obedience that you need to be called to? Or is there just adoration and worship of God that you need to engage in? And listen, we, we have decision counselors in the back. If at any moment you need to speak with someone, you can just get up and go back there. They would love to talk to you. We also have rooms in the back for you to pray in where you can be left alone. No one's gonna bother you. You can do business with God if you need more time. So at any moment during this time, you can get up and go back there. But this is a time for each and every single one of us to ask God, what, find out what he said to us personally today. Did God convict you of any sin where your life is not adorning the gospel, that you're not being a, a model of all good works? If you did, would you repent? If you feel like you're doing all right, but you're kind of limping in it, and you feel like you just need help to to live this life. Can I just remind you, Jesus has power to help us actually live this life. Would, if that's what the call is, you feel challenged to live a life worthy of the gospel, would you just ask Jesus to help you? For some of you, you've, you've walked away from God. You, all this is new to you. I just want to remind, tell you the good news. It was good news for the people in Crete and it's good news for me and it's good news for all of us that in our brokenness and rebellion, God sent his son because he loved you and he loved me regardless of your performance. And he says, listen, I'm gonna send my son. He's gonna die on the cross for you. He's gonna fully pay the price for all of our brokenness and all of our rebellion. And he's gonna be buried. He's gonna come back to life three days later. And he says, listen, if you want to be my son or my daughter, you want me to change you, forgive you of your sin, give you a new heart, adopt you into the family. Here's all you got to do. No performance, no baptism, no goodness. You just need to 
repent of your sin and place all your trust in the work of Jesus on the cross. Just ask him to save you. And he says that he will. If you've never done that, I want to encourage you right there in your seat to do that right now. For everyone else here, I just want to have you just for one moment right there in your seat. I want to remind you that Jesus cleans you, that he's empowering you, and that he's going to finish the work. Can you take a moment right there in your seat to praise him for that? Heavenly Father, God, you see our hearts. God, I pray you would make us a people. God, make us a people who live wisely. God, make us a people, make us a church that the teaching and the living are sound and solid and accurate. God, make us a gospel people that we put the courage of Jesus into one another, that we come alongside of, that we speak the truth. God, make us that type of church. God, we need your help to do that. And I pray for every man, woman, and child in this room today that we would leave here confident that you're strong and at work in us and hopeful that you'll finish the work you started. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.